Okay, well, let's get started. Uh, thank you for being here at the second class session, the in-class session of our church history class. We have a very special guest with us tonight, Adam English, professor of religion over at Campbell University. Adam has written a book called The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus. You know who that is, right? Nicholas. When, when, when did Nicholas live? Late third, early fourth century. Long time ago. That's true. Yeah. That's part of, the, part of the quiz here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, Nicholas was at Nicaea, and this is of particular interest to Adam, and so we've asked him, especially as we think a lot about the fourth century tonight, to be with us. But we're going to open our time uh, with prayer, and uh, then Neil will get us started, and we'll have Adam say a few words in a few minutes. So, Neil, would you uh, pray for us? Would you pray with me? Father God, we praise you and thank you for being a good God, a God who loves us. Jesus, we thank you for purchasing and justifying us. Spirit, we thank you for your sanctifying work in us. And as we look back uh, through the centuries at your hand and how you have worked uh, through the lives of so many, we pray that you would illumine us, open our hearts and minds to understand uh, how your word is to be understood Help us to apply it even to our own lives, that uh, we can take the knowledge from your own work and, and discern correctly your words in Scripture. We thank you for leading us into all truth and for, um, for walking with us. We pray that you would guide us tonight as we look over the, uh, the fourth century where so much occurred and uh, your name was not only praised but combated as well. We pray that tonight... Uh, through the lives that are here and those that are listening in, uh, that your name would be praised in uh, in all that we do. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, once welcome once again. You are in the live, unrehearsed version. And unless all of you want to stay, this is going to be the, the only recording tonight. So we may stumble over a few things, but that's okay. Uh, first, we want to do is uh, go over some of the the goals that you you may have seen on the slide deck for every week. And as you go through each one of these, hopefully we've hit each one during um, our classes. Uh, we, we look at a particular time period, but we don't focus just on a set limit, limited uh, time frame. We look at individuals, and hopefully you're seeing that the, the personalities, the these people who God used, and some who thought they were doing God's work, and and even the government as well, um, hopefully they're becoming real to you. And uh, we're focusing mostly on theological developments, as, as Brad has pointed out several times, and hopefully we can point out a few this evening uh, that maybe you've been thinking about. Uh, and we're going to look at some themes, and I know in our audio sessions or, or the previous recorded sessions, We'll hint on those throughout the recording that we'll say, and this is one of the things that we've been talking about. And if you have any questions about any of them, please don't hesitate to ask. And uh, as we do in our dis- our weekly discussion questions, we want to pick up some, some questions and feedback from you as well in translating what we know of the past into how we can relate it to the present. And then also, for those of you who have vast amounts of time on your hands, we're going to give you some, some resources online, audio, video, um, anything that you can get your hands on. But I know 
a couple of weeks ago, the uh, prayer focus was on uh, the time for church history, for uh, for the, the leadership, as well as for everybody who's participating. And is it just me, or has anyone else felt their time and stress level being stressed since that prayer focus? Is it just me? And that's not just me, right? Uh, I think we can continue to pray that... Um, that we stick to it because there's obviously meat here that we can we can gain and there's a lot to learn and a lot to apply so as we move forward don't hesitate to raise your hand ask questions we've got mics so we ask that you you please um, speak into the microphone so we can get on the recording so those who aren't here can can hear the question as well as the answer and tonight we're going to look at these topics in this order so let's begin with our quiz review. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I don't have the quiz in front of me, but I know there are some irate quiz takers out there. Trick questions. <laughs> How many thought trick questions in the quiz? Who took the quiz? No, you, don't, you shouldn't answer that. Might be too discouraging. Were there any specific questions, either about the questions in particular or the material covered in the quiz? All right, if you haven't taken it, I'd, I'd encourage you just to, I mean, we're going to leave it open for the entire um, semester, so be sure and check that out. Uh, it, it's not, nothing's going to count against you. Uh, you're not going to lose any money by uh, dropping a letter grade in the class. Okay, if there's nothing on the quiz, going once, twice, no, okay. <clears throat> First four centuries, so this is going to be a quick, maybe a eight to ten minute overview and for this I'm going to get any feedback from from you if you have any questions any comments that you want to make I'm, I've been encouraged by a lot of the insight from our discussion questions online so if you have anything to add please do and um, I, I may at times put Adam on the spot to uh, lend us his his knowledge and expertise of this area but we're going to do a, an overview of pretty much what we've learned the last four weeks beginning with the early church was a persecuted church, and that persecution had a purifying effect. Isn't that right? Um, Adam, maybe maybe you can just um, add 30 seconds to a minute of, on each point here if you want to add any clarifying remarks or, or comments. I mean, yeah, those are great points to pick up on. Um, you know, you have two stresses on the early church. One is persecution. The other is just rapid growth, as you already see in the New Testament. The church is... Um, growing from Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, already by the New Testament, that it spread to Rome and beyond. Um, well, that process only continues. And uh, at the same time that in various places you have persecution, that the authorities in just society are looking down upon Christians or you know, kicking them out of town or even putting them to death in extreme cases. So these two stresses... Uh, extreme rapid growth, and then also the pressure of being an illegal religion, you know, those, those are just going to create a lot of friction in the early church, uh, growing at an exponential rate, you know, all the problem, the headaches that come with growth. And then you've got to imagine what it must be like to always live in this constant state of anxiety and fear that you might be next or that, you know, your church might be next. Christians live for long periods of time in relative peace with their neighbors, but then persecution might just flare up for any reason, for any moment. And those are 
um, I mean, that is going to create an environment <laughs> where we have, uh, we have a lot of stress in the church in the early centuries. And you would think that uh, persecution would work against growth. Hmm. And right. yet Tertullian, and yet, remember mm-hmm. Tertullian from what city? Anybody know? Tertullian, Carthage in North Africa, um, said, yes. If I can interject, this is a, a good way, alliteration to learn, to, to remember a couple of these things. Tertullian was from modern-day Tunisia, and he coined the phrase Trinity. So T-T-T, Tertullian from Tunisia, Trinity. And we hear a lot from Tertullian on just a number of topic subjects. And he was the one who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So persecution actually spurred growth. It's not always that way. Uh, In China, in the Mao Zedong era, Christianity was greatly suppressed. But once restrictions were uh, loosened a little, then a rapid growth. But anyway, let's move on. I would ask really quickly, have you thought, as you've studied these people or we've studied the early church, and what strikes you about their stand for Christ and how different that is from what we, we face? That was, that was kind of surprised how... Can we get the, the mic... Yeah, would maybe someone volunteer to move this around? Rick, you, you've got the mic, so. I was surprised how they, the, in generally, they, they, they grasp the persecution and, and at times almost look forward to it. Um, I look in our times how we'd be, you know, speaking for myself, be running for the hills and things like that. But back then it was almost, you know, something to be proud of and, and look forward to. And there were examples of... of you know, people in the church trying to help some of the people being persecuted, and they didn't want help. They wanted to go through the persecution and the martyrdom and stuff, and that was that was interesting to me. It is interesting. It's not necessarily a biblical approach. Jesus and Paul both avoided persecution until the time was right. For Paul, it was when it was inevitable. Jesus, the time, of course, had been set. Well, I don't want to throw get us off, Neil. You go ahead. Good the stuff. Next. Well, the next point is, uh, for centuries, it was known as the Catholic Church. Now, today, Catholic takes on a different connotation. Does anyone remember? And can you uh, share with us all what the early or traditional meaning of Catholic is? Universal. So what does that mean, universal? Okay, worldwide. How does that affect the beliefs or, or the, the makeup of the church from city to city, region to region, what does a worldwide church look like other than it's being spread out? Common beliefs? A unity of Community. faith. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. Unity. Especially in persecution. And, and part of that unity was um, sort of summarized in creeds, right? Like the Apostles' Creed. And there became, they weren't completely unified on every aspect. There emerged uh, two different schools of thought with interpretation to Scripture. And uh, here again, I'm going to pick on Adam to see if, if he knows his, his geography. And uh, maybe he can explain how, cold, <laughs> how some of the, um, the cities, the bishops from certain cities, 
desired a, a literal sense, and, and there were more philosophical thinkers who tended to an allegorical interpretation of Scripture and, and what that meant for for the people living in those cities. You know, that, I'm glad you picked up on some of those different ways of interpretation. Um, of course, in, in one large sense, um, all of the early church interpreted Scripture in a way that was in one sense literal. I mean, they took the stories of the Bible as being, and all of them certainly took the Bible's stories as being historically true or literal in, in that sense. Um, but they all worked by an associative method. That is, when they read um, the story of, you know, Balaam and the donkey, you know, they were connecting it with Jesus riding in Jerusalem on a donkey, and they were connecting that with other donkeys they find in, in other parts of Scripture. So really, I mean, the term, maybe an associative method, uh, where they hear a term, if you see grapes mentioned in a story, you know, oh, I'm going to connect that with the grapes that uh, press out, uh, the grapes of wrath that press, that you know, talked about in Scripture, chasing that with the blood of Christ spilled on the cross. And so some of these did it in more allegorical ways and others in more literal ways. But really, they're reading it. And, of course, you see this in the New Testament. And some of you have been puzzled by this. Sometimes you'll see uh, Matthew quote something from the Old Testament. And you flip back and look and say, what in the world? That isn't, that's not at all what he, you know, he was talking about in Isaiah or wherever. Well, they're using an associative method of reading Scripture where they see a phrase or word. You know, and it connects because all Scripture is connected. This is the one word of God. And so where you see a word in the Old Testament, it connects with a word in the New Testament. They saw no, no gap between those. So I think they read Scripture a little bit differently than we read it today. Maybe we have something to learn from them um, in both of this literal allegorical, but also there's this associative way where we're connecting um, the passages and stories to each other. Neil is... Um fishing and we've been following these two cities especially in the early first couple of centuries in Alexandria and Carthage uh, and Alexandria being a more allegorical uh, that's where allegorical interpretation was Al- much allegorical more common Alexandria. Uh, yes beca- because it, it was this, uh, Alexandria what, what's unique about Alexandria in the, in the ancient world intellectual center of the world, the great library of Alexandria. Uh, and philosophy was big. And so if you lean toward philosophy, especially Plato, you end up with a lot of um, philosophical approach to, to Scripture. So it's allegorical interpretation. Carthage, uh, Tertullian, Cyprian, those guys, much more uh, literal in the way that they looked at Scripture. I've thought about what Adam was just saying uh, those of us, and we tend to interpret Scripture much more literally than allegorically here, but it is problematic sometimes when you look at the way the New Testament authors interpret Old Testament Scripture. They're doing it allegorically, and uh, the best method we would say, or the best thing we could say about our method is that, well, they have the right to do that. We must be careful. The problem with allegorical interpretation, if, if everybody's tr- interpreting Scripture allegorically, we all have different ideas about the meaning. And so it may mean something to you. It may mean something entirely different to me. And we may miss the meaning altogether. So we have to be careful about that. So you see where that, you see what's going on. Later on, 
it would be Alexandria and Antioch. Then it's Constantinople and Rome. It seems like always in the early church you've got two cities vying, two, two uh, types of, of, of thinking and looking at Scripture in these different places. But in the earliest days it was Carthage and Alexandria. North Africa, very... Uh, this another thing interesting about North Africa... Uh, a lot of the martyrs were from North Africa, and Christianity made up so much from the lower classes and most of the empire, but a lot of uh, very uh, bright men and women in, Alec- or in North Africa accepted Christ, and that's where a lot of our theology began to be formed in, in that region of the, of the world. Not all of it, but a, but a lot of thought was given in, in, in that part of the world. Well, schools of interpretation is a a topic that interests me. And um, for those of you who are familiar with uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, uh, are there any nodding heads out there? Okay. Um, Some people refer to that as the big blue book. There's a companion to it. I I believe it's one of his friends who wrote the big green book. And I can't remember the exact title or the name of the author, but if you can check with me afterward, um, he, he writes historical theology. So he takes some of those doctrines like how did the church look at interpretation? And he maps throughout the early church, the Middle Ages, Reformation, and even today, how the church looks at interpretation. And, and it's interesting to see um, literal versus allegorical, but you still have to take into account genre like poetry and, and typology, or we may refer to typology as foreshadowing, like Joseph or Joshua is a foreshadow of, of Christ and so forth. So that it's... It's interesting stuff and is very relevant because um, if if we today don't know how to read our Bibles, we're going to be left wandering, being tossed to and fro. Any questions about the the churches around the Mediterranean basin so far? All right, we'll move on to the next subsection. So there were some controversies that uh, spread abroad throughout the the region. And these were some of them. Uh, let's do a quick knockdown of Gnosticism, Montanism, Sabellianism, Arianism. Of course, this is only some. It's not a complete list. So are there anybody out there who would be willing to um, give their rendition of Gnosticism or Marcion as a segment of that? I know you know what it is. Secret knowledge? It's good. It's good. How did Marcion affect the, the church? We're asking now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who are we asking here? Um, yeah, you know, Marcion was one of, is recognized partly because he's one of the first ones to come up with, uh, you know, a list of scriptures uh, for us. But, you know, he definitely, um, when he read scripture, he... Uh, you know, he saw that there were almost like two gods at work, uh, a God of the New Testament, a God of the Old Testament. And, you know, gosh, I mean, he's, he's on to something. I've taught, um, you know, junior high Bible studies, and, you know, I've had seventh graders say, gosh, it almost seems like there's two gods here, doesn't it? And you say, well, you know, <laughs> he, he's, uh, he, he picks up on something that he feels is there, and he wants to, you know, have just the God of the New Testament to the, to the exclusion of the God of the Old Testament. Um, you know, of course, uh, 
Christians very quickly realize, no, wait a minute, there's only one God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And, you know, that's part of John. In John's message, Jesus identifies himself as I am. I am you know, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the I am, uh, recognizing, no, that even in the Gospels themselves, Jesus is connecting us to the God of the Old Testament. There's only one God. Um, but I think the Gnostics here, in their defense, they're, they're trying to make the gospel accessible to Greek speakers, to Greek people who haven't read the Old Testament, who don't know Hebrew, and who didn't grow up going to synagogue, but they know Greek categories of spirit and flesh, light and dark. And they're, you know, I mean, the same ways that we might try to Americanize the gospel, they're trying to Greekify the gospel. And so it makes sense to talk about, you know, these categories of, uh, you know, spirit versus the flesh. And um, Jesus seems like, oh, he's a spirit come among us, uh, us people of flesh to lead us back to the light and lead us back to the spirit. Well, that all makes sense if you're a Greek. Uh, the problem is that, you know, it's not gospel. <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not the faith. Um, so we see distortions of it in that way. And, and um, Marcion also motivated the church to come up with a list of books that they would consider Scripture, New Testament books, canon. And it, it caused them to, to also respond with uh, statements about their faith. What is it that we believe? And, and, and a lot, as we will see over and over, a lot of the early creeds, uh, a lot of the statements of faith, a lot of the councils where they hammered out theology were, were done in response to heresies and oftentimes had unintended effects down the road. They'd say, okay, this is where we stand. And then later church leaders would take where they stood back then and stand somewhere else claiming to stand in the same place. But we'll, we'll come to that. But Marcion actually had a, a, a very, and, and Neil talks about this a lot, had a, it was an unintended effect of his, but it was a very good thing that the church began to say, okay, let's, let's pull together what is Scripture, what's not. He accepted very little of the New Testament. It was kind of a pick and choose what he wanted to be there. And for the sake of time, I'll just run down these others. Uh, Montanism basically is uh, claiming new revelation. Sabellianism um, comes under different names that suggests that um, God manifests himself in different modes. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit, but there's no Trinity. And I've mentioned this before, a very popular, uh, well, amongst our age, contemporary Christian group, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, are modalists. These guys are modalists. it's, It's not a condemnation kind of heresy. I don't think it's the same kind of heresy as Arianism. Uh, go ahead, Neil. So Adam and, and David last week uh, spent some time on Arianism, describing uh, the controversy and the theology behind it. And um, Arius basically claimed that uh, Jesus could not have been the same as God. He was sort of a God, but a lesser God. And uh, so we have uh, Nicaea um, and uh, claiming, you know, or, or proclaiming, Orthodoxy. So what these controversies had as their effect are bishops came to rise in power. Uh, creeds were uh, formulated in order to summarize what Orthodox uh, 
theology and doctrine looks like. And councils, they, they met to either claim that something is okay or something that is not okay. Yeah, you know, and I might just point out, again, like the word Catholic bishop at this moment doesn't mean what we think it means. Um, they're using the Greek word episkopos, which is a New Testament word for the shepherd, the head shepherd. So really, this is just the word for the head pastor. Even our American word, or English word, we say, you know, pastor has that sense of being a shepherd. Um, so the, I mean, bishop uh, is typically what we call them, but we probably could just call them the head pastor or the head shepherd of his flock. Um, so it does not come with what we think of when we think of today as a bishop. It didn't come with all the extra trappings. It moved that way, though, didn't it? Um, because of the fight against heresies, uh, you would say, well, what, what is truth? And the, and, the, and the response would be, what does the bishop say? Certainly. Certainly you see that already um, in Ignatius of Antioch um, talking about, you know, there's respect for your bishop, respect for your head pastor. Um, you know, and I think this is always going to be the tension in the church. Uh, we can think of churches today, um, maybe even megachurches that in a sense, idolize the head pastor, and so no one would dare contradict or speak a word against the head pastor. He's kind of a claim for himself, where, where certain do powers. I find, find one of those churches. Right, yeah, I mean, my goodness, it's a, it's a dream. Um, and certainly that was also the case in the, in the early church. Some head pastors claimed more authority for themselves, uh, and others did not. And so I think we're still wrestling with that today, the question of leadership and authority. Um, you know, who... Who decides the faith for the people? Uh, is it the head pastor? Is it the group of elders? Is it the congregation? Is it some other structure? Um, and so they're definitely wrestling with it. I think it's a problem still with us today. I don't know if it's ever going to be a yeah, fixable it, problem. Another reason it was such so important to uh, uh, appoint bishops was because there was no... There wasn't the New Testament as we have it today. It was well into the 4th century before finally the church said, okay, we're agreeing on these 27 books. They, almost all of them were in circulation by early in the 2nd century, but, uh, and most of them actually even before that. But, so the bishop had a, had a place of authority because he needed them. I mean, there were no more prophets, there were no more apostles, in the sense, that in the ways that we knew him in the New Testament, so the bishops needed to uh, articulate the faith and their understanding of, of of Scripture, and also it was quite easy to move in that direction because that was the culture. We talk about a lot about one of those themes that we talk about is the impact of culture on theology and on church life. You see that in megachurches where the pastor is idolized and can be the king, but even there, he's certainly not above being taken down because of our, what is our government system? It's democracy, and so everybody wants to say. Um, David Wells, in his book, No Place for Truth, says everywhere in America, or in America, uh, the, the experiment in America would have been fertile grounds for revolution in any European country because of the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. But the place where, but we all know somebody who's made it, right, financially. So let's, let's say free market, capitalism, it's okay if, if there's this disparity here. But where we demand equality is in truth. 
Truth is not what the theologians say. Truth is what the majority says. So benefits today is that nobody can get too big for his or her britches, but you can, in a negative way, say, well, look, my understanding is just as good as your understanding. So what if you've got X number of years studying theology? You know, the Holy Spirit's just as real to me as he is to anybody else. And then if you've you got a charismatic person there who gains a following, then it's just going to go any direction. So pluses and minuses all along. This is not going the way you thought it was. <laughs> what is it real? And in fact, I really, I have to ask, I didn't ask this beforehand. I want to ask you what's the best thing about this class so far and what's the most difficult thing about this class. What's the best thing for you so far in this class? I mean, it's an avalanche of information, right? And it just feels like it's it's growing. That that uh, avalanche is growing, and you're you're not going to get it all. So you know, when we said it's an overview of an overview of church history, we we lied about that. <laughs> it's just a lot, isn't it? What's the best thing? Somebody grab a mic and share. Yeah. What's the most difficult thing? Yeah. Keeping up. Yeah. When you're reading, do you get, you understand the names and the, you know, you're getting all of that? Try to find church for <laughs> Well, I mentioned this the other day, and, and, and I know there's so much, even the, even the handful of you that are responding to, to some of these questions, it's just still so much to keep up with, but... I mentioned the other day there are layers of learning and you hear these names now and they don't mean much to you. Later you'll hear them and you'll have some context for them and your your education will grow. It'll build. So it's keep hang in there. Even if you stay behind, that's okay. Or just skip a little bit and catch back up and just do what you can. All right, Neil, I think we're ready to close, are we? <laughs> Amen. Now, uh, this uh, pretty much concludes our review, and now we're in the the fourth century, and we talked about Constantine again last week. He was a big game changer, and one of the things that um, resulted from church and state coming together was a flood of of hermits. So that's what we want to talk about next is monasticism. So we're just going to maybe spend. 10 minutes tops here before taking our first break. And we want to look at how uh, monasteries and monks got their start and, and why there was, there was once said uh, there's more monks in the desert than there are people in the cities. And, and, and what do they believe? And why did they believe what they believed? And, and how it uh, affected the church down through the ages. So I'm going to just ask Adam to jump in anywhere he likes and, and just start talking about uh, the beginnings of monasticism and, and how it took off. Sure. Uh, one of the first recorded uh, stories of a monk was written by Athanasius, who you've already met in your reading, uh, who's, who is a, a big person at Nicaea and influential on the doctrine of Christ. Uh, but he, at one point in his life, decided to write the life story of Antony of Egypt, and uh, it's the kind of thing you can you can get from the library, find on the internet now, and read. It's a short 
um, life story, and it's fantastic. Um, Anthony is, as a young man, um, he and his sister lose their parents but inherit a large sum of money. Uh, one day, Anthony is in the church, and here's the word of Scripture being read. Uh, Go sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Anthony says that he takes this as a direct command to him as to what he is to do. And so, in fact, that's just exactly what he does. Sell all he has and goes into the desert to follow Christ. Um, People are moved by his example. Uh, And eventually he has to move deeper into the desert because people keep coming out wanting to visit him, find out, well, what are you doing here and what... You know, how are you doing it? How are you living? And so on and so forth. Um, I think a lot of monasticism just starts like that. People want to follow Christ. How do you do it? And they're seeing the corruption in the city. The, uh, you know, they're seeing uh, society fall apart in some sense just because of what's happening politically with the Roman Empire falling apart. They're also seeing maybe the corruption in the church. Uh, you know, bishops wearing red garments of silk and, you know, gold in the church and so on and so forth. And, you know, they just, what are, you, what are your options at this point? Um, well, you could just leave. And so some of them just left and just went into the desert. And as soon as, as, as more people just went into the desert and lived in uh, caves and in little, little huts, uh, finally they, they started to come together in communities. Um, is what we call synobetic monasticism and you know, share what they had and build for themselves little huts and communities. And um, Pacomius, one of the first organizers of these groups of monks in the desert. Monk just means a lonely one. Someone who wants to go and live alone. And a life of prayer, fasting, devotion to Christ and to God. Um, And so, you know, really, I think that's where you have the start of it. It's just people looking for ways to serve Christ and looking for ways to somehow get out of the corruption of the city, of, you know, of of even the institutionalization of the church. Um, And, you know, in in a time and a day where you didn't have a lot of other options, well, here's one thing you could do. You can always just walk out. (laughs) That's what they did. And they started off alone, but then... Uh, as Adam says, they, they, a lot of them began to say, well, we have to live in community because otherwise how can we serve one another? Mm-hmm. And Scripture commands us to serve one another. But it's quite interesting, many of the guys that made a huge impact on the church and make a huge impact on us today did not, they were very reluctant bishops. And a lot of them wanted to be out in a monastic community somewhere. So this question is for Brad and Adam as well as everyone else. Can anyone identify some of the benefits and drawbacks of becoming a monk? I think we've started to hit on some of them already, but I, th- I'm, I don't see Bert here tonight. I know he, he brought up monasticism as an interest of his. Uh, I'm just trying to identify with the mindset of these early monks, and I think there's, in many of us, maybe a, a similar desire to get away from things to just have a christian community so what are some of the benefits and or drawbacks of such a desire
prayer. But then the drawback is, how are they being like Jesus when they are separating themselves from the people who need to hear the gospel? Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I'm wondering, like, how many of you have been on a uh, a church-led retreat or a spiritual retreat of some sort? I mean, that's basically a modern form of uh, a sh- temporary form of monasticism, isn't it? <laughs> A retreat, you know, kind of into a quiet place. And I heard about a monk who uh, was allowed two words every ten years, and after ten years, he said, "Cold food." And um, then he said, uh, "Hard bed." And then he said something else. And or after the next uh, ten years, after thirty years, he said, "I quit." And and uh, his superior said, well, you may as well, you've done nothing but complain it the whole time you've been here. <laughs> That's right. That's good. That's good. Well, as we look not just at the, the monks of the 4th century, but uh, actually their impact down through the ages, um, has anyone done any reading ahead to see how monasteries and, and monks have contributed to the uh, preservation of Christianity? Is anyone ahead? book, um, How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill, or makes that argument that it was the monks in the monasteries who preserved reading and writing and, and texts at a very dark moment when such things were being destroyed and forgotten. And, um, you know, but there was this group that carried on the traditions even while the world was burning outside. We'll cover some of those details uh, mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks when we look at the, the fall of the empire and how that impacted the church. We'll see how monasteries became our, our scribes and schools started at monasteries for the sake of teaching the kids to read and write the Bible. Anything else? Any comments or questions on monasticism? Oh, yeah, it was a lifelong vow. Um, I mean, obviously, at first, there's just people wandering into the desert, and you stay there as long as you can, but uh, all the stories testify to them living and dying there, you know, in that in that cell. Some of the teachers would come back into the cities, and that's when they were pressed into becoming bishops. And they were literally, uh, as Borgman says, if you've listened to any of those uh, audio sessions gang pressed into being I mean somebody would show up and, uh, and they would call the name and say bishop yeah. and they, bishop you know and it was not always um, I don't know it was not always the the best form the Nitrian monks just outside of Alexandria you know got to be a very rough crude illiterate group of men who would come into the cities and really make trouble for the churches um, you know so we have 
Clement of Alexandria is complains bitterly about them because you know they come in. I mean, they're basically your your mountain hillbillies that come in. They stink. They're illiterate. They're loud. They're rude. And but you know what? I lived in the mountains for twenty years. Oh, there you go. So <laughs> well, they would come down and right, they'd make all this trouble. Um, so some of them lived lives of holiness. I mean, they certainly all tried to live lives of holiness, but you know, some of them became very um, absolutist and mean-spirited, <laughs> uh, you know, and very dogmatic in kind of their way of, of life. So some of them were very sweet-tempered and, and wonderful, and then, then, of course, you've got your others, right? So I think that you know, both are present. Yeah, so, so some broadened their views and others narrowed yes, their views in that's those a good way places. to say it. All right, this um, monasticism is one theological and practical development that occurred during this time. And when we come back from our brief break, we'll take a look at another one, uh, a look at the end times. So why don't we do that now? Okay, well, let's jump right into this next section. We we may not spend a whole lot of time uh, on it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna poll the crowd. Who can give a brief summary of any or all of the millennial? Positions. Has anyone seen these terms before? Okay. At least you've seen them. Does anybody know what they mean? Don't they have to do with, like, when Christ is going to come and take the church? Whether it's before, I don't know, it doesn't trip. Yeah, but Along those same lines, it's closely related to um, the tribulational views. And the millennial view is pre-Christ is physically going to return before uh ushering in a, a thousand-year reign. And then post-millennial is uh, Christ will return after a thousand years of uh, what seems to be a semi-golden age. And all-millennial, all meaning no, there, there's no literal thousand-year reign, but it's rather a, a figurative or allegorical thousand years that Christ is reigning now through it, his people. It means, ah, oh, there ain't going to be no millennial. <laughs> That's what a millennial is. So you may be wondering, why in the world, if we're looking back 1,700 years, are we looking ahead to the end-time views? Well, uh, Constantine really changed a lot when he brought about a a Christian empire. And and we know that that took on phases where it wasn't officially a Christian empire until uh, one of his sons or grandsons um, made it official. But... um, a lot of people, starting with the historian Eusebius, you may have heard that name as a, a church uh, historian, started believing that uh, you know, maybe the church is doing something new here that we didn't understand before. So I'm going to ask anybody who has studied this before, if you want to jump in with some comments, I'm going to get Adam and David also to talk about maybe some of the reasons why uh, the church started to play with different ideas, uh, different views of the end times. I want to add right up front or jump in right up front and say that actually uh, in the first couple of centuries, uh, the church had a very strong belief that Jesus would return at any moment. And it's one of the reasons that it took so long to get this grouping of New Testament books. They didn't see the urgency for a canon, a group of uh, books that everyone accepted as Scripture because they just kept expecting Jesus to come back, but the longer that went, then the more they moved toward 
uh, the scriptures, but they also had to move in their views about what's what's up with this. What's Jesus? When is he going to come back? And what's going to be the result of it? Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, obviously, you can imagine their sense of crisis as they're expecting Christ to return any day, and that, um, and it doesn't happen. And and of course, I think we've. Many of us have gone through that similar sort of thing when you we've read the Gospels and heard the words of Jesus. This generation, you know, will not pass before these things happen, and and we see it as our generation. And at and some that, point, you go, oh, "Gosh, wait a minute! What if it's not my generation? It wasn't and, their generation." And, and there's 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. That's you know? right. That's I mean, right. you're seeing that all the time. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, uh, this is probably moving ahead in the story, but it really is Augustine of Hippo uh, in the early 400s in a big book called The City of God who really is the one to wrestle through this this very crisis of faith. Oh, wait a minute, we thought he would come like as in tomorrow so that I wouldn't have to pay that IRS bill, and it, and it didn't happen. So what do we do? How do we renegotiate those things intellectually? And... Um, and so the church, I mean, people are having to do this in very common ways um, everywhere. But Augustine of Hippo really is the one to help the church move to a new understanding of, of this. Montanus actually was the first date setter. I noticed that mm. several of you mm-hmm. were very interested in Montanism, the, the idea that the Holy Spirit is doing a new thing. Uh, Tertullian that name we keep mentioning was actually swept away with this idea. And you see that a lot today. Uh, you know, we've talked about Joyce Meyer in our services more than we anticipate, more than we plan to when Sean brought her up one day and a lady objected. But Joyce Meyer says things like, look, God has shown me things that he hasn't shown the apostles. Well, that started with Montanus in the late second century. Mm-hmm. And so he was actually a date setter. Jesus is coming back. And then, you know, he's, he, he renegotiated that once Jesus didn't come back on a certain date. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll look closer at uh, Augustine next week, um, but he, he truly was a, a capstone in a changing period where Constantine brought church and state together and people started thinking, hey, maybe this is the kingdom, this is the millennial kingdom because the church is now ruling the world. And then what happened when Rome fell? Does that mean, you know, the, the church is fallen too, and Augustine has to wrestle with? Well, no. There's, there's a city of man, and then there's the city of God, who, which will continue forever. Any other questions or comments on end time views during this period? Quickly, premillennial Christ is going to come back established, like Neil said. Postmillennial, we will usher the kingdom in, and you can understand why people thought when Constantine now legalizes Christianity, this is it. Jonathan Edwards thought the same thing. He said America is going to be that bright and shining hill, mm. city on a hill, and and we are going... Somewhere around 2000, Jonathan Edwards thought Christ was going to come back because of America's commitment to Jesus. But Augustine, and again, this is in next week's class, but Augustine was quite taken with Plato. Most influential theologian for Catholics and Protestants throughout the ages, quite taken with Plato, uh, spirit, material, dichotomy. And you can understand why he says, well, look, Jesus isn't going to reign on this earth. 
You know, this, this, the earth is material. It's got issues ever since the fall. And we would, most of us believe that God is going to cleanse this earth, but he will reign. When he created it, it was good. Again, you'll hear that on film next week. We did that yesterday but, uh, or two days ago. So, All right, I'll this stop. next segment, is we're going to do a little bit of a rapid fire. So uh, maybe we can take it one, two, three, and then reverse the order. Oh, we'll see about that. I'm not familiar <laughs> with some of these names. We're going to start with Brad every question. Uh, so we're just going to look at some of the personalities. Some were mentioned last week and some uh, were not. Uh, they may have been covered in your readings uh, if you were able to to read some of those recommended chapters as well as the required ones. So let's start with uh, some of the Cappadocian fathers. I know uh, David and, and Adam, this is one of their, their sweet spots. They like... Uh, these guys, and we should because they, they contributed a lot. So uh, I'll go ahead and start us off with, with Basil. If we can just take maybe 30 seconds to a minute on each one and say something interesting about them or, or uh, a noteworthy contribution. And uh, when I was looking at uh, Basil, known as Basil the Great, um, I thought it was very interesting. He followed a pattern like several key people in, in church history, but not what you would think. He was a lawyer a young lawyer who went off to school, and then when he came back, his, his big sister, and we'll look at uh, big sis in a, little, in a few minutes, um, but she told him, you know, you're arrogant. You've got to put away your, your false sense of know-it-all. You need, to, you need to get down on your knees and pray. Uh, it took him a while, but he did, and then because of big sister's influence, he became a champion of orthodoxy, bringing Arianism's reign to an end at, uh, I believe, is it Constantinople in 381? Yes. Adam, you want to take uh, the first Gregory? Hey, the brother of Basil. Um, you know, I love the story of Gregory because it, in many ways it, it sort of makes me think of my own story of uh, you know, he's someone who didn't, he has this great older brother, he's got this fabulous sister and you know, he's just sort of there, and, um, you know, at one point he just goes and lays down by a shrine of the 40 martyrs, virgin martyrs, and, you know, has a dream, you know, about what, what is he supposed to do with his, himself and his life? And, um, you know, out of that dream, he writes a little book called On Perfection, <laughs> which is basically, you know what, I'm not perfect, and it's okay that I don't, I'm not my brother, and... I'm not my older sister. Um, you know, God has a place for me and a will for me as well and ends up writing some very beautiful meditations on on Christ, on faith. And, um, you know, my favorite one is those on perfection. Do I remember correctly that is this Gregory who was maybe be described as a quiet personality who didn't want any of the limelight but was almost thrust into the, uh, the, the council? Well, it, it's his... It's Gregory of Nazianzus who becomes the, uh, the presider over the council of, um, and becomes a bishop kind of against his will and, and the presider of the council of Constantinople in 381. Um, and Gregory of Nyssa was forced to travel uh, with the emperor uh, Theodosius. Is that a correct pronunciation? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus was a, a character that David and Adam studied. I remember David saying, yeah, we're reading this book on, on, on Gregory. Um, what's interesting about this guy, Basil's good friend, uh, is that his father was an Arian bishop. 
his mother, Nona, um, raised him as an Orthodox believer. Quite impressive when you think about that. His father is an Arian bishop, and yet his mother raises him, don't listen to your father. <laughs> and, of course, we would have problems with, you know, we would say, hey, that's, but it was a really good thing. And I sent around a quote yesterday, I don't know if you read that, by Gregory, and I'm not going to read all of this, uh, but these guys uh, were the, uh, the driving force behind the, the statement on the Trinity that came out at Constantinople. But Gregory of Nazianzus said this about uh, the, the Trinity. Um, he said, the infinite, this, I'm picking this up mid-sentence, the infinite conjunction of three infinite ones. Each God, each God when considered in himself, as the Father, so the Son, as the Son, so the Holy Spirit, the three, one God, when contemplated together, each God because consubstantial one God because of the monarchia. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. That's a beautiful way to think about the Trinity. Maybe as good as you can possibly get when you think about the Trinity. We've not only seen great protagonists in church history, we've seen uh, antagonists as well. Arius was one. Uh, and here, Julian, he's not a theologian, so this is, you know, any, anybody who wants to comment, just jump right in. Uh, what was, who was Julian and what was his impact? By the way, Nanzian, Gregory of Nanzianzus was also one of those reluctant bishops. He had actually founded a community. Uh, for men like Macrina had done. We'll, we'll hear about her, like you say, in a little bit. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Does anybody out there know who Julian, which Julian I'm talking about? This would be, this would be Emperor Julian, also known as the Apostate. Yep. That's a name you want after your, <laughs> a title you want after your name, right? Um <clears throat> So we, we see through the 4th century um, great controversy battles of both church and state because they're, the two are married. Um, so Julian was known as the apostate. Why? Because he was Arian? Or, or why? Renounced the faith. Yeah. yeah, he, yeah. He was, Didn't want anything to yeah. do with... Uh, he was very... Put off by Christians. You may know a lot of these people. They he grew up in the church, being schooled along with his brothers uh, in the church in the faith, and decided, no, it's not for me. I don't want it. And when he became emperor, he enacted policies uh, to follow suit. He wanted to uh, bring back the majesty of the old paganism. And uh, there's an interesting story about him and how he used Athanasius and how Athanasius uh, was not was not uh, playing into his, his games. Because um, thinking Julian wanted to bring Athanasius back because what better way to divide the church than to bring bring Athanasius back to battle the, the Arians. But instead what he did was preach against the pagan emperor. <laughs> Athanasius, by the way, the great champion of orthodoxy in the 4th century, 
was exiled five times. Mm-hmm. These emperors were going back and forth between Nicene, those who followed the council at Nicene and the, and the creed. Well, the creed was not in the form that we know it now, but followed the teachings of Nicaea and then those who were Arian in uh, their beliefs. And whenever one emperor would come in, the bishops of the other would have to get out of town, in fact, hide, run for their lives, or at least be taken to the edge of the empire, dumped off. So Athanasius five times was exiled, bishop of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. I think we covered him pretty well between last week and, and this here. So let's move on to John, and I'm going to say Chrysostom. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. What was his role? Yeah, again, you know... Uh, just an influential preacher, mainly uh, began in Antioch and then was moved to Constantinople as the as the bishop there again, head pastor more than anything. Uh, and again, Constantinople at this point, yes, yeah, the capital of the empire. The empire that's right. Um, so you've, you know, it's a seat of power. You know, it's the Washington D.C. of the ancient world, and he preaches what he's always preached, which is. Uh, about living a godly and pure life uh, against corruption and you know really attacking some of the you know the pet sins of the day of luxury and avarice and um, you know showiness and things like that and so he very quickly um, makes for himself many enemies um, but uh, you know also noted because he he was a maybe David would especially be interested in, in John Chrysostom because he really helped shape the liturgy liturgy or the order of service for the um, Eastern Orthodox, which still to this day follow the liturgy or the order pattern of service set by John Chrysostom, and um, so he's very influential in the history of worship in terms of how he arranged. The pieces, the scripture and the music and the readings and so on and so forth. And uh, we owe a lot of the order of worship to John Chrysostom. Most known for his preaching, though, uh, the surname Chrysostom was given to him about 100 years after his death. And it means gold-mouthed. He was quite an eloquent preacher. And one of those enemies that he made happened to be the empress uh, and had quite a few battles with the wife of the emperor both names escape me at the moment. Well, another uh, powerful preacher, Ambrose, I think we're going to touch on him a little bit next week. So for time, I'm going to um, bypass for now and then go over to Jerome. Let's just take a, a minute or two for Jerome. And uh, w- one of the things that struck me, I'm just going to say briefly that he was a peculiar guy, very strange individual, and we probably know people like him um, you probably Maybe. work with, with some of these people. Maybe uh, some tonight that are here. <laughs> <laughs> How was he peculiar? Yeah, I mean... What did he donate to the to church history? Jerome is, will never be one of my favorite <laughs> figures. I mean, he was mean-spirited and irascible and um, very ugly in his rhetoric most of the time. But, uh, to his credit, he was a great translator and a great scholar. I mean, he was a scholar of his time. Uh, of all things, but uh, what we owe him is the Latin Vulgate or the Latin translation of the Bible. There were some translations into Latin already floating around, but they're very deficient in the sense that 
the New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there were also Greek translations of the Old Testament, and the only Latin translations available were from the Greek translations. And so Jerome was maybe one of really almost two or three individuals in the world who took the time to learn Hebrew as a Christian, to learn mm. Hebrew from uh, Jews and translate the Jewish Hebrew Old Testament text into Latin. And so for that alone, he deserves our respect and deserves admiration to give us a really quality translation of the Hebrew Bible and then also the Greek New Testament into Latin. And, um, and Which it became the standard text for the next, you know... 1,000, 1,500 years. Yeah. And it was important because Greek was considered sort of a base language in Latin, um, uh, a more educated, the, the more educated amongst the people spoke Latin. But it's interesting, you're talking about Jerome taking the time to learn Hebrew. Augustine didn't even know Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just learned that yesterday. Um, I, I didn't mm-hmm. realize that. Here we consider him the greatest theologian. Yeah in the history of the church, and he didn't even know Greek. Yeah, the limitations of the day, right? So you just... um. I think Gonzalez covers an an interesting little, a humorous little spat between Jerome and and Augustine. um, That uh, If you take a look at that in your readings, it it was humorous to me uh, concerning part of his translation of the Vulgate. So uh, we've finished this segment. We're going to take a technology break, so don't go anywhere. This is going to be brief, and then we're going to start back up uh, with women in church history. And we'll do that quickly. Okay, uh, for our last segment, I want to begin by just referencing once again uh, the book that Adam English wrote, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus. You want to tell us a little bit about it? I appreciate you. Get this you. on Amazon. Yes, yeah, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. I appreciate you. You know, bringing it and showing it to everybody it means a lot to me. Um, uh, and, you know, Nicholas is just one of, obviously, many characters that we could, you know, we could just dig into and see um, how they live their lives out as just ordinary, uh, not extraordinary Christians in many ways. He didn't write any sermons that we have or tracts of theology. He He attended Nicaea, but as far as we know, he... He didn't contribute much. All we have are legends. You've heard some of those legends about him slapping Arius in the face. And we mentioned that on the video that, um, you know, that again comes much later. There's another legend in which he, at the Council of Nicaea, explains the Trinity by holding up a brick and saying, you know, just as this brick is made of three parts, you know, you've got, of course, the the dirt or the clay and the water that goes into it and then the fire that forms it into a brick. So the Trinity is, you know, one God made of three. And as he says this, the brick explodes into fire and dust and then also water drips out onto the floor and everyone, of course, is amazed and impressed. Um, this is a later legend, <laughs> you know, that comes later. But um, but certainly, he lives out an ordinary life of goodness, of charity. I mean, what impressed me about Nicholas is that he's not doing supernatural miracles. He's not writing great, you know, volumes of theology. But he is doing good works and um, taking care of innocent 
people that have been falsely accused and mm-hmm. you know taking care of young maidens who have lost all their fortunes and mm-hmm. you know like that's that's really the spirit of christmas at least and the spirit of good christian ministry that we want to embrace so we'll stop traveled there a lot didn't he in late december <laughs> yes. yeah he always kept reindeer in the shed <laughs> for special occasions all right i just want to say as we begin this next section there's no way that we can do um, any of these um, topics justice. So, again, we're just going to do brief personality rapid fire. Uh, we may not even cover all of these. So if you want to take notes, you can. This will also be available online afterward. <clears throat> so, um, Brad, Adam, if you see any up there that strike a fancy or if there are any uh, sitting here who have questions or comments about any of them, let's We talked about Perpetua. Do you remember her? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Neil mentioned her in class. What, what's the deal with her? She was a martyr, but there was something a little unique about her in, in her day. She was wealthy, and uh, in fact, she died with her slave. Uh, and they kissed one another before uh, dying. What else? Do you remember about her hair? Right. You know, Helena, I love her because uh, at least the reputation she had, and we have nothing to contradict it, that, you know, she was a um, a barmaid at one point and that, uh, you know, she had married, you know, Constantius, the father of Constantine, and that he ended up, you know, divorcing her later because, you know, she was not royal. And, um, and yet, then once Constantine comes to power, obviously he remembers his mother, you know, mm-hmm. and and and, uh, and she gets to celebrate some of his victory as well, and and travels a great deal, carrying gifts to the church, money to the church. She visits Jerusalem, and it's really through her that uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, a huge church over the place of Jesus's burial, uh, was built. And while in her visit there. Um, at least uh, how much ever credence you want to give to it, but uh, they discovered the true cross. And it was part of one of the celebrations of her arrival there was that um, they you know, found supposedly the true cross of Christ and, um, you know, and were able to erect it. Obviously, was it really the true cross, true cross of Christ? Probably not. Um, but you know, that's, you know, th- that was part of her legacy, was this legacy of faith, and Christian devotion, and wherever she went, she took, used her power as empress and her wealth as part of the arm of the empire to bless the church and to um, you know bless the people. And so, you know, I think you know she goes down in history as a favorite. I'll put Jerome over one pile, and you know, <laughs> let me have Helena uh, in another pile. You see Macrina there as the Cappadocian mother, quote unquote. Um, she was a big sister to Basil and, and Gregory and really spiritually led th- that household for, for a long time and, and began uh, a female monastery and was very impactful for who we know as the Cappadocian Fathers. I was talking with Neil earlier today. It's so interesting. And reading through Scripture, I do that a lot. Not, not every year, but a lot of years. And it struck me maybe 10, 15 years ago how often the kings of Judah, it'll say, uh, he did that which is right in the sight of the Lord, or he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then 
immediately before or after the mother's name is mentioned. And I thought, wow, there's got to be a connection because that happens over and over. Now, not, not with the first ones, but then as it gets rolling, you see that a lot. And, and so this list, you see the tremendous influence these women had in a day when women were not looked to as leaders, but a lot of these were spiritual leaders. I'll give you another little name that's not up there, um, but if you have extra time and you want to read a fascinating travel log, uh, The Journeys of Eregina, which her name is spelled with an E-R-G, figure out the rest, Eregina. Um, she was a wealthy woman from Rome who had the time and the money to travel into the Sinai Desert and then up into Jerusalem and was there about the time of um, Easter one year and just records what she sees. And it's just a fascinating story. It's just set in the, um, I think the 400s or 300s, um, right around the end, I forget exactly, late 300s, I believe. And, um, you know, just a travelogue of what, what would you find, especially in the churches. Um, she's, she's doing it as a pilgrim, visiting the holy sites. And um, just, you know, great stuff. Uh, she left it for us. I, I love Eregina, so, And it's a short piece, travelogue. And I think at another time we'll have to look at um, how the, the roles of women in, in the early church. Um, just for, for time's sake, again, we'll, we'll go to our last segment. And this is something I alluded to earlier in our uh, online discussions. If anyone had questions about where certain Roman Catholic traditions came from, we've actually covered the roots of several of them in these first few centuries. And... Um, I don't know if anyone, has anyone been listening to any of the other, either Brian Borgman or Tommy Nelson's audio versions of uh, church history? We've got a couple. Uh, I'd recommend definitely the Brian Borgman stuff, but uh, this particular anecdote came from Tommy Nelson that if you have gone shooting before, you know that a bullet enters small, but when it comes out, it it has a gaping hole. It leaves large. And that's that's the same parallel with theology, that ideas may start small, but if you carry them out to their logical conclusion, they will come out larger than anyone ever anticipated. And uh, some of those ideas we're going to look at now. Um, we'll go briefly over them. I'll go ahead and throw all of them up on the, on the screen. If anybody has one they would really like to cover, um, shout it out. Otherwise, we're just going to you know, fly by some of them. We talked about purgatory uh, in our first session. That the idea was began in Second Maccabees and was sort of picked up slowly along the way until I was looking at some quotes today that uh, Catholics tend to think that a lot of the early church fathers believed in a form of purgatory. But I think it's it's arguable what they meant by. Suffering and life and afterlife, and it's just—it's a big uh, area that uh, can be explored. Penance, penance, and forgiveness by the bishop. Does anyone have any ideas? You should have be familiar with this from earlier readings, where this sort of got its start. Say again. I think that's what it became a part of, but that's not how it started. Yeah, remember the lapsed schism or, or controversy? Is that what you're going to say? you have anything to add to it? Yeah, this is, uh, remember, 
Cyprian, again from, from Carthage. Cyprian, Carthage, there's your alliteration again. Um, he, he said, yeah, let people who have lapsed in their faith under threat of, of death back into the church. But let's make sure they show signs of, of um, you know, repentance. And this is where penance came in. So it was an idea of validating someone's repentance and was picked up and enlarged over the, over the years. And he also talked about you know, the bishop is the one who can allow lapsed Christians back into the church so Christians can come to the bishop and you know who knows exactly what he meant by that if if the bishop can forgive sins, but that's the idea that ended up from it, isn't it? Yeah, and it was in response uh, to a group called the Donatist uh, that said bishops really don't have the authority to say that because there were some people who stood for their faith; they were tortured, uh, persecuted, and. Those who stood for their faith are the ones who need. And some of these priests that are actually baptizing people um, denounced the faith or they hid. They didn't face persecution uh, in a very manly Christian way. And so they don't deserve to be bishops. And, And Cyprian, that's when he said he cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. He, would, he didn't mean it in the Roman Catholic way that we do or that we think about it today. But that's a very important fact. One of the most famous quotes in all of Christianity. He cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. And actually, we would do well to give it a little more credence than we do, I think, today. But Cyprian was simply saying, you can't... Because the Donatists were saying, look, this guy baptized you? Uh, well, it doesn't count because he, he lapsed in his faith. And so, and Cyprian said, no, we can't. It's not. It's not the person. And Augustine really uh, dealt with this as well. It's not the person. It's the, it's the, it's the sacrament itself that God does with Christ through the priest and if the priest goes bad well so what Um, it it was done with the right words word and sacrament going together so consequently and but then these ideas were taken to extremes later when there's no dissent when when authority and when biblical interpretation is narrowed more and more into a very small group of people uh, that's when a lot of these went off the rails. I mean, that's, you know, you're right. That Cyprian is writing in a time of persecution. One of his sayings is, apart from the church, there is no salvation, which strikes our ears. Maybe it's very, I mean, just very wrong, and maybe we're offended by it. But, of course, at the moment, he's trying to say, look, either you identify with us in the heat of this persecution, or don't call yourself a Christian, you know, don't. You have to stand with the church, with the people of God in the good times and the bad times. Or don't claim salvation, right? Don't claim to be a part of us. You know, don't just be the fair weather friends. Obviously, then, as you say, down through the ages, that moment of uh, that good insight at the moment, I think it's lost something, uh, becomes a, uh, a principle that is used to is used for power, used to exclude people. Well, there we go. Maybe done anyway. So. 
Constantinianism or that sacral system in the fourth century where empire and church came together, um, pagans who wanted to retain their paganism but because of popular demand wanted to call themselves Christian as well, um, what better way to maintain prayer to your pagan gods but to just rename them saints of the church, right? And then priests, um, this hierarchy of elders to the bishops and then bishops to priests, again, was molding itself after the, the culture rather than impacting the culture. Again, at that time, the culture was pagan, and they had pagan priests. So instead of the church impacting society, society impacted church by their hierarchy and, and the names and roles of, of the leadership. So I hope you can see that ideas do have consequences. And we're going to explore some of those in this week's discussion questions that start thinking about small ideas that may not be completely biblical but are good, maybe pragmatic at the time. Carry them out to their logical conclusion and see where they may end up and see whether or not it was a good or biblical idea. So for that, that's something for you to think on. Before we close, were there any questions or discussion or comments? Yeah, um, I just have one you mentioned that I start listening to analysis that has used in the Roman Catholic Church that I want to know about. Um, I've always wondered why such a focus on the Virgin Mary in mm. the Roman Catholic Church. Even in reading some of this in the book, I see back even before this time, I see things up here and there about the Virgin and that she's almost elevated to the point of being like another god and a woman or goddess. We're going to cover especially the debate that comes along just a little bit. Mother of God, Mother of Christ, Mother of God. Mary is rightly called Mother of God, but that, you can see how that goes. Why that goes badly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's just some natural, I mean, a natural place of elevation for Mary. She's the mother, mother of Jesus, our Lord. And so, in a sense, she has a... She will always have a special relationship with him that no one else can claim. And, and I guess talking about taking things to their logical conclusion, I mean, you can sort of see how, you know, as we as we start to, you know, think about that and meditate on that, you know, it does become problematic. But I think it starts from, again, this natural desire to revere Christ and, you know, think about his mother as... You know, being, you know, the mother of our Lord. And so, you know, she has kind of a special place that uh, then gets blown out of proportion, certainly. But, uh, you know, again, I, you know, it's a very gradual process. I mean, I think it would probably take a lot, you know, a lot more investigation. But you're right to pick up on it. It's even early on in the church already there is a a desire to elevate her um, above. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, that's about it, yeah. Just going to say, it's uh, one of the great books that I've read is a book called The Lord by Romano Gardini. Haven't, mm-hmm. Actually, haven't read it all. A Catholic priest mm-hmm. uh, from the 40s. Theologian. Really great. And I don't even... He says uh, just enough about Mary to keep his good standing with the Catholics, but he points out that every interaction that Jesus had with Mary was... He was rebuking her. You know, and he says Mary becomes the co-redemptrist, which, again, we would think is ridiculous. But 
she is a co-redemptress because of her recognition of who Jesus was, not because she was, you know, equal to him. But um, it, all of Scripture, you know, every time Jesus interacts with Mary, he's saying, what, what? You don't understand, do you? You don't get this, do you? So I don't, I don't really get Mariology. But what did you learn tonight? What did you learn? We got a few, few more here. I was going to ask uh, on the same lines of the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, where the practice of indulgence came from, mm-hmm. how that got tied into purgatory and all that. Yeah, it's probably safe for a later. Uh, that's a medieval development. We'll probably hit that um, maybe three or four weeks when we look at the, the medieval church. It's mm-hmm. a good capital campaign, though. I mean, it's a good, good way to raise money yeah. for the church, essentially, is what it was, ended up being. What? Mm-hmm. Uh, here. Maybe it's a question. I was going to say, these variances or these you know, examples of going off the reservation, it seems like it, when modern denominations do that, there's a sense of pride. We have to acknowledge that nobody else mm-hmm. has you know, a group pride. Was there a sense of that back then, or were they competing with anybody else where they kind of had to say, I have our own special version of the truth that they don't have, that's why you should do that? A little bit, but that's why the Catholic, the idea of Catholic was so important to the church, and why they said you need to be a part of this group that believes rightly. And and yes, there was this enormous pride, like with the Donatists and the, you know, all those who were separatist in nature, but... That's why the church didn't split up into denominations. They were trying to unify, not... uh, It's one of our... And I'm for it, you know, when I think about it. Ideally, it would be wonderful for us to all be together, but... Mm -hmm. It was definitely a temptation, right, to pick up on that. Well, covering both... The material that we've been learning, as well as technology, are, are, what have you learned? Are there ways that we can make it easier, more accessible to you? Give you more hours in the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, we already mentioned next week is Augustine, so I'm going to turn it over to our distinguished panel I, for final yeah, thoughts. I've already said about Augustine. What I wanted to say about this is, um, or Augustine, hmm. I would say. It doesn't matter. But uh, we're going to have the second semester next fall. It's not going to be in the spring. So what you don't get now, you can catch up in the spring. There's no way. I wonder, is there anybody who's all the way caught up? I bet a few. Carla? I've counted it up, and there are three individuals. I'm not going to say who they are, but there are three that uh, have done everything so far required for the second track. So wow. that's very commendable. Macrina, Monica. <laughs> that's right. That's great. But everything's still open, so that weekend that you have time, you're welcome to catch up. That's great. Well, Adam, would you close in prayer? Oh, for I would us? be honored to, yes. Our Lord and God in heaven, we thank you for the, the saints of old who have carried the faith and handed it down faithfully so that we have something to inherit. And uh, we give you praise for their witness and their lives and their testimonies to the truth and to your word. We pray that we can follow faithfully in their footsteps and 
somehow we can make them proud of uh, this heritage that we have inherited. Lord, I thank you for your gift of Christ. I thank you for the church and the good work that's going on here even now. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.